Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, economist James Galbraith wrote a few months ago, it is in the nature of articles about the debt ceiling that no matter how often one tries to set the record straight, nothing ever gets through. Elite media's fundamental misrepresentation of the debt ceiling would be troubling enough if it were just a bad history lesson. But current Republican brinkmanship could have devastating impacts for millions of people, along with the harm to public understanding of what's actually going on. We'll hear concerns about the process and the coverage from Chris Lehman, D.C. Bureau Chief at The Nation and contributing editor at The Baffler and The New Republic. Also on the show, the right to fix the things you buy is the sort of thing you wouldn't think would be controversial here in the land of the free. Corporations' attempts to prevent people from fixing their cell phone or tractor or wheelchair ought to be seen as the overreach it is. But for years, news media have presented the right to repair as a voice in the wilderness, up against benevolent companies' efforts to do best by us all. That's changing with legislative moves around the country. Right to repair is having a watershed moment, one advocate says, adding that there are still a lot of opportunities for mischief. We'll get an update from Kyle Weens, co-founder and CEO of online repair community iFixit. That's coming up, but first a very quick look back at some recent press. On May 1st, the New York Times reported on Iran's execution of British spy Ali Reza Akbari and told readers, quote, The spy had provided valuable information and would continue to do so for years. Intelligence that would prove critical in eliminating any doubt in Western capitals that Iran was pursuing nuclear weapons, close quote. Whatever one may think about Iran's actions, this is simply false. As Fair has pointed out repeatedly, the position of U.S. intelligence is that it has no proof Iran has decided to build or is building a nuclear weapon. The U.S. State Department reiterated in April of just last year, quote, The United States continues to assess that Iran is not currently undertaking the key nuclear weapons development activities it judges necessary to produce a nuclear device, close quote. So the Times is claiming that an Iranian who spied for Britain delivered valuable information. But its description of what he supposedly revealed is disinformation. This is a serious error that deserves prompt correction. We encourage listeners to contact the paper, letters at nytimes.com. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Corporate news media provide better and worse explanations of various issues, of course. But there are some issues where elite media's explanation leaves you somehow more ignorant than you were before you read it. The debt ceiling, and what media insist is a partisan showdown around it, is one of those issues. 
If you are disturbed by reporting that misconstrues an issue where that misunderstanding can lead to people losing their health care, you have company in our next guest. Chris Lehman is D.C. Bureau Chief for The Nation, as well as contributing editor at The Baffler and The New Republic. He joins us now by phone from the D.C. area. Welcome to Counterspin, Chris Lehman. Hi, Janine. Thanks much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, before we get to corporate media's funhouse mirror version, can (laughs) can you start us with some information about what the so-called debt ceiling is and the role that it has played in reality historically? Uh, Yeah. I mean, the pithiest definition of the debt ceiling, I think, is a completely pointless contrivance that has outlived whatever usefulness it may have once had, if it ever did. It was ginned up in 1918 in response to the deficit spending of U.S. entry into the First World War. That was a time before Keynesianism existed, and there was a frantic perceived need to tamp down on deficit spending that proved to be largely as I say, pointless. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, you know, the pointlessness of it was firmly demonstrated during the Great Depression and the Second World War's mobilization of the American economy and the post-war boom in the American economy. So that we now exist in a world where the United States is the only major industrialized nation that has this dumb boundary on what it can spend. No other, literally no other country in the world deals with this. So it's also clearly unconstitutional. There is, in the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, what's known as the Public Debt Clause, which just flat out states the validity of the public debt of the United States shall not be questioned. (laughs) So what's frustrating, you know, living in Washington as I do and seeing versions of this showdown play out time and again for what are, yeah, crass and venal partisan reasons, there is no reason for any of this to be happening. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the the right likes to claim that they are originalists when it comes to constitutional language, right? So here is constitutional language saying you are weaponizing the spending process for what are nihilistic policy ends. You know, what they really want out of all of this is to basically hold the American economy hostage so that they can extort from the opposition in Congress and the White House key spending cuts that their donor base really wants, but that are vastly unpopular with the American public. Um, There are things like an accelerated work requirement for Medicaid. There are things like deep cuts to uh, the Veterans Administration special service funding. They are things like rollbacks of IRS and antitrust enforcement. It is just a wish list for the far right uh, that is being smuggled in under the color of an alleged both sides showdown over how much we should be spending. Right. It is all made up. (laughs) I'm clearly at a point where I'm just exhausted at the approach of this ritualized conflict and the media's, in my view, just unbelievably negligent handling of the issues. Because when you look at coverage, 
it makes it sound as though kind of our hands are tied. Right. There's nothing anyone can do. There's Yeah. And so there's basic – it's not a – ideological, I mean, it is ideological, but there are basic definitional problems with the way that media are talking about this. So like when the New York Times says, quote, but eventually the United States will need to either borrow more money to pay its bills or stop making good on its financial obligations, close quote. Well, that's not that's not how that works, right? No, it's exactly right. And again, this is all being ginned up as a crisis for political gain on the right. And if the media could just report that, which is the truth, we would have a different follow-on conversation instead of this, you know, airy make-believe fantasy that somehow there's going to be a grand bargain where both sides will compromise and, you know, the golden mean will prevail. It is stunning to me that, you know, we went through all of this in the Obama administration when there was the fiscal cliff and there was the approach of the debt ceiling. There was all language that made it sound like we were in some film noir B movie. (laughs) We were going to be kidnapped and thrown over the fiscal cliff. And it was all just for an organized ideological assault on social spending from the right. Um, It's exactly the same thing now. Kevin McCarthy is doing the bidding of the Freedom Caucus, which, you know, we all remember from January, tried to block his path to the speakership and extorted all these confessions. And this is one of the key ones that they got. He's forcing a confrontation with the Biden White House over the debt ceiling so that they can try to get past, you know, all of these, again, unpopular cuts to spending that they will not run on. So it's both fundamentally opportunistic and venal, and it's deeply dishonest. And the press goes along with that dishonesty in a way that it's just, frankly, infuriating. Well, I'm going to bring you back to elite media and their ironclad framing that they won't be moved off of (laughs) um, in a second. But I just wanted to tease one other thing out, which is that coverage often implies or at least does nothing to dissuade a reader from a family budget analogy or like right. you using your credit card, thinking that debt is something you bought but couldn't pay for, you know, so that even if this list of things that might be cut, social safety net programs, military salaries, etc., well, that's terrible, but you've got to be fiscally responsible, you know, and that's pathological. I mean, that's just deceitful. Yep. I mean, at least when the debt ceiling was originally introduced, American leaders had the excuse that Keynesian economics had not existed and hadn't been tried. But uh, the American economy functions in a very different way from any household economy. And what happens in a downturn is that demand freezes because credit is now prohibitively expensive. Banks are failing the rest of it. And so that is where the government comes in and, quote, primes the pump. And, you know, and the other thing to note is all this spending was fine when it was approved during the first COVID emergency under the Trump administration. The Congress suspended the debt ceiling for all that. So, again, you just connect all the dots here. And we are not in anything like economic crisis conditions. The, The economy is functioning at something close to full employment. And the only crises are concerning banks that were overexposed on bad debt in Silicon Valley. 
and now are facing higher interest rates that the, the Fed has exacted. So none of that is going to be remotely addressed or solved by cuts to spending extorted under the debt ceiling. It's also, you know, not to get too nerdy and wonky here. Um, Go ahead. It's notable that as FDR and the New Deal were combating the Great Depression by priming the pump with government spending, FDR and his Treasury Secretary had a brief flirtation with fiscal austerity in 1937 and tried to balance the budget and another recession promptly ensued. So this is not to say that would be the case necessarily here, but it is to say that, again, this model of we have to tighten our belts and and keep the debit and, and credit column in perfect alignment wreaks havoc in macroeconomics in a way that you know, the model of the household spending, you know, credit card limits just does not apply. And it's often dangerous to apply. Right. And then, you know, we are not ever tightening our belts. It's really only some people who are feeling the brunt of this. Yeah, that's the other thing is this is a party that is lavish tax cut after tax cut to the 1% and exacts fiscal discipline on everyone else. Well, let me just ask you, finally, we've been talking about it all along, but when the New York Times says in covering this, quote, the bad news, Democrats and Republicans are divided, close quote. Right. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't even know where to start, but elite yeah. media's fealty to this phantasm of bipartisanship, whatever it means, speak to that, but maybe in terms of what would better coverage look like. Yeah, as I was saying before, better coverage would just report the truth, which is one political party is using an outmoded mechanism to extort cuts to spending that it cannot legitimately put forward for public scrutiny and win. (laughs) So there are lots of ways of making that point. I think there's also a big failing on the part of the Democrats here of just not taking the weapons that are at their disposal. I mean, It's very easy for Janet Yellen, the secretary of Treasury, um, when the debt ceiling comes on June 1st or thereabouts, to just say, we're going to ignore it. It doesn't matter. Similarly, the Biden administration could fight the public debt clause of the 14th Amendment and say, like, look, if we if we are not honoring the country's debts, we are in violation of the Constitution. Make the Republicans be the party of both cruel Dickensian fiscal austerity and abuse of the Constitution's powers, you know? So it's not all the failing of the press, but it is significantly the failing of the press. The Republican Party does not have a case here. And our elite media, of course, functions as a for-profit industry. It's owned by the people who want this kind of austerian budget process that benefits the wealthy. So, of course, its material interests are going to be reflected in how it covers matters of economic policy. All right, then. We've been speaking with Chris Lehman. He's D.C. Bureau Chief at The Nation. You can still find his piece, The Media Can't Get Enough of the Debt Ceiling, at thenation.com. Chris Lehman, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you, Janine. Wheelchair users in Colorado now can fix their own chairs when they break. 
It did take a new law allowing them to access the parts, tools, and diagnostics they need to do that. For the same reasons that for years, John Deere argued that farmers don't really own the tractors they buy because those tractors carry computer codes that are proprietary, farmers just have an implied license for the life of the vehicle to operate the vehicle. As our next guest has said, the notion of actually owning the things you buy has become revolutionary, if ownership includes your right to modify or repair those things. But it's a revolution that is underfoot, so let's catch up. Kyle Weens runs iFixit, an online repair community and parts retailer that demystifies technology and empowers consumers. He joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Kyle Weens. Thank you for having me back on. Well, we spoke almost exactly six years ago uh, in April 2017 when John Deere was arguing with a straight face that farmers shouldn't really own their tractors because if they had access to the software involved, they might pirate Taylor Swift music, you know. And at the time, you said, it's not all gloom and doom. There is hope on the horizon uh, in terms of states and places ready to move on right-to-repair legislation. And it seems to be happening. I'm seeing words like momentum attached (laughs) to the right-to-repair effort. So bring us up to date. Well, it, it definitely took this long to get here. Uh, we, we have introduced agriculture right to repair bills every year since we chatted. And it's only now, it's only in the last couple of weeks that we finally have a bill make it over the finish line and actually get signed into law. And that's where, and but other states, I feel like I'm reading they're bubbling up, but maybe not getting through, right? So, yeah, so far this year, 28 different states have introduced right-to-repair bills of different kinds. Some are targeting uh, farm equipment. Some are targeting consumer electronics. Some targeting appliances. Colorado's made it over the finish line for farm equipment. So for the first time, uh, John Deere and others are going to be required to share that software and the tools that that they've been saying for so long that farmers shouldn't have. Uh, That's absolutely huge. Uh, Governor Polis signed it into law last week with a big red tractor in front of the Capitol building in Denver. So that was like the most exciting visible moment. But we've we've had some other legislative wins along the way as well. Well, I know that here in New York State, uh, late last year, early this year, Governor Hochul signed something. But I know that, as pretty much always happens with legislation, what went in wasn't what came out. I wonder if you can speak to maybe what was lost there, but also what's the lesson for other states when they're trying to push through this kind of legislation? Absolutely. So New York is the first broad sweeping electronics right to repair bill. It says if you're going to sell an electronics product in New York, you have to make available the parts, tools, and information that consumers would need to to fix it. And it levels the playing field between the dealerships, you know, the Apple stores of the world and the rest of us. So that's fantastic. The modifications, the two main things that got watered down in the New York bill at the last minute. One is it only applies to future products. So it only applies to products that you would buy after July, right. uh, which is a little bit annoying because generally the things that break are the things you already have. So <laughs> it will it sets the stage for the future, but it doesn't apply retroactively. And the other thing is is the governor exempted business products. 
to things like like copy machines, and servers, and 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 enterprise products, products that hospitals and schools depend on. And so we are optimistic that other states will fix the loopholes that the governor introduced. Well, let me ask you, who is still opposing right to repair measures and have their arguments shifted or is it still nefarious third party actors might get involved or consumers might hurt themselves repairing things? What is what is the opposition line? Yeah, having advocated for this for the last 20 years almost, I feel like I'm trapped in the Groundhog Day movie. <laughs> it's the same arguments over and over in every state. The arguments haven't changed since we talked last year. Uh, and, and the arguments are really infantilizing. They say things like farmers can't repair their own equipment. Of course they can. That's how that's how all of us get our food is a farmer using equipment that they have repaired. Like there's no farm, there's no farmer that is not repairing their own equipment. It's just preposterous. Right. So electronics manufacturers say the same thing. They say you can't fix your iPhone, you might hurt yourself. Well, the only people I've seen hurt themselves with a smartphone are folks using it with a cracked screen and cutting their finger. <laughs> the right to repair is so many things. It's about consumer power as against corporate overreach. It's about twisting the law to give power to the already powerful. But it's also, and folks should understand, it's an, it's an environmental concern at a fundamental level. Yeah, Absolutely. The products that we use have a huge amount of embodied energy and resources that go into it. The smartphone in your pocket took over 250 pounds of raw material dug out of the ground. Collectively, we manufacture about 1.5 billion smartphones a year. So think about that. 1.5 billion smartphones multiplied by 250 pounds each. It's a literal mountain dug out of the earth every single day to make the technology that we have. And then we only use a phone for a couple of years, toss it in the drawer and buy another one. We have to find a way for the sake of the planet, for the sake of our future, to use these things longer and manufacture fewer at the beginning. I just feel like it's, you know, folks might read it as the little guy against the man. And it's it's really about the kind of world that we want to live in. You know, I mean, it seems so big to me. It seems such an encompassing issue. Absolutely. It's, it's a huge environmental impact, the embodied energy and all the products that we have. But it's, it's also about cost and consumer rights. If yeah. you go and you buy a refrigerator right now, the typical lifespan of a new appliance is about seven years. And I don't think anyone wants to buy a refrigerator that's only going to last seven years. You'd expect it to last 15 or 20. Exactly. You know, so it's a big question in terms of like, how do you want to live in terms of what you want to have in your home? And then then who do you want to be reliant on? You know, because the argument of, of a lot of these companies is, oh, yeah, sure, you can repair this stuff. It's just you need to come to us to repair it. We need to be the only ones to repair it. So as you said six years ago, it's about a lockdown on the aftermarket. Right. And that control comes with a lack of local self-reliance. We find in rural communities in particular, this is very important. Farmers talk about how, hey, it's four hours to drive to the nearest dealer. I have to haul my tractor four hours each way. That's crazy. And this all has been ushered in by electronics. This is not a moment where all the manufacturers got together and decided to be evil all at once. Instead, what is happening is electronics and software are moving into all of our products. And and it provides tools for manufacturers to intentionally lock products down. But it also sort of creates this accidental path where like, I don't think the appliance companies are trying to make a microwave that only lasts seven years, right. but they put 
electronics in it that don't last that long. And they haven't figured out how to backfill that with repair models that will compensate. Well, I saw an article in, it was in Harvard Business Review, but I suspect it's going to be a line that folks will see in whatever media they're reading that said, you know, hey, right to repair, it's, it sounds cool, essentially, but, you know, manufacturers might strategically adjust new product prices to mitigate their foreseeable profit loss from the <laughs> right to repair legislation. And let me also add, even though people might buy fewer new products, Easier repair could lead more consumers to use old, energy-inefficient products, resulting in a higher environmental impact. Any response from you on that kind of line of argument? Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. On the one hand, I'm, I'm kind of okay with new products costing a little bit more if they last longer. Mm-hmm. Right? I'd happily pay 20% more for a refrigerator that lasted twice as long. That would be fine. On the product energy perspective, you know, for a long time, it was true that upgrading your appliances, particularly your refrigerator, would yield huge energy savings. Around 2000, 2005 or so, we, that really plateaued. We stopped gaining huge efficiency with, with new products, just incremental gains, but they're pretty darn minuscule. So there's no one out there where replacing a 10-year-old refrigerator with a new one. That makes sense purely from an energy consumption perspective. The embodied energy in manufacturing that refrigerator is greater than the efficiency gains that you're going to see. And I guess I resist the idea that, well, you know, uh, if you want things to be better societally, then manufacturers are just going to increase the prices. Like, that's not an automatic. That can be a conversation we have. If your CEO is taking home $11 billion a year, maybe there are other ways that we can talk about resourcing the kind of world we want to live in, I guess, I think. Absolutely, and I ho- hopefully competition will bear this out. Uh, France has a repairability labeling law where products have to be labeled next to the price with how easy or hard they are to fix. And the surveys they've done found that 8 in 10 consumers would pick a more repairable product over their favorite brand. So I think you're going to see a shift toward the companies that, that really get on board with making longer-lasting products. All right, then. We've been speaking with Kyle Weens, co-founder and CEO of iFixit, an online repair community and parts retailer. Thank you so much, Kyle Weens, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Happy fixing. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, fair.org. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.